This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fourth episode of season 11. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know less time separates humans from Tyrannosaurus Rex than separated Tyrannosaurus Rex from Stegosaurus? Stegosaurus roamed what's now modern-day North America during the late Jurassic period, about 155 to 145 million years ago, whereas the T-Rex didn't arrive until some 68 million years ago during the late Cretaceous period. Humans then popped up some, what, 500,000 years ago or something? Madness. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Final quote of the day. Everybody thinks it's going to be different for them. The dinosaurs thought so too. That was said by American novelist Catherine Davis. Listener Michelle Butterworth requested this case via email. We're in the city of Hull this week, or Kingston-upon-Hull to use its full name, which is located in the East Riding of Yorkshire. We visited Hull back in Season 6, Episode 8, when I covered the murders of Samantha Class and Alina Grelakova, so please go back and listen to the opening of that episode if you're after some quick-fire facts about our location. In the opening of last week's episode, I spoke for a little while about domestic violence and the shocking statistics surrounding it. You may or may not know that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, having first been observed in October 1987. I just want to remind anyone listening who is experiencing domestic violence, has previously experienced domestic violence, or is concerned that someone you know is, there are people out there who want to support you. Please reach out to one of the charities in this episode's description, and remember, you are not alone. Joanne Jean Nelson was the firstborn child to her parents, Charlotte and Jean, and was one of three daughters the couple would welcome to the world. Born and raised in Hull in the early 80s, Joanne's role as the eldest sibling was something she thoroughly enjoyed and was an expert at. One of Joanne's younger sisters was Katie, the other being Janie, and she fondly recalled Joanne being the ultimate big sister. Her kind and caring nature gave off a warm and welcoming aura, which led to the two younger sisters relying on her when they needed a sympathetic or understanding ear. There was only a three-year gap between Joanne and Katie, which is the most common age gap between siblings, by the way, so the pair got on like a house on fire. Plenty of happy childhood memories occurred, which will no doubt be remembered by Katie and Janie for the rest of their days. If you ever had concerns about something you'd done, you could speak to Joanne about it and she'd make it all better. Relationship wars, money issues, career headaches the warm embrace of big sister Joanne would make things seem right with the world. Being a friendly and talkative young woman is something that led Joanne down the career path she was taking. Her desire to help others who were less fortunate led to Joanne acquiring a role with the local job centre. 
It was her way of giving back to her beloved Hull community and spreading her positivity to those far more in need of a boost. One of Joanne's best qualities was her trustworthiness. Katie has mentioned, however, that it is perhaps that noble trait that unknowingly led to the events I'm about to tell you. Like a lot of young women, Joanne dreamt of marrying the perfect partner. We all know the Disney-inspired fairy tale whereby a certain Prince Charming saves a woman, typically a princess, in peril and goes on to marry her with them living happily ever after. We all know the sketch. When Joanne met 28-year-old Dorman Paul Dyson working the whole bar and club scene in around 2002, she was just 19, she may have thought that her dreams were about to become a reality. Despite being nine years her elder, Dyson's muscular frame and laddish charm endeared him to Joanne, with the pair soon commencing a romantic relationship. Regarding Joanne's trustworthiness perhaps being a factor, as stated by her little sister, the context of that perhaps head-scratching statement is down to Dyson portraying himself as something that he wasn't. To Joanne, Dyson was a charming, well-built older man who could keep her safe and build a future with her. He seemed like the perfect gentleman at first, but had she known of his dark past, the argument from Katie is that Joanne would have run far, far away from Dyson. The relationship would never have begun, and what happened to Joanne would, therefore, not have had the chance to take place. Firstly, Dyson was a violent man with a short temper, something not helped by his usage of anabolic steroids. I read one article which explained how his mates used to refer to him as psycho, owing to his vicious temper, muscular frame and mean spirit. Perhaps his temper stemmed from the idolisation Dyson had for his dad, Peter. Way back in 1967, almost 10 years before Dyson were born, a 22-year-old Peter was involved in a stabbing in which John Dickinson, also 22 and a love rival of Peter's, was killed. Peter was married at the time, I assume to Dyson's mum, and took exception to what he perceived as being an inappropriate friendship between his wife and John. Using a kitchen knife, Peter confronted John about it when things got extra heated on one occasion in Barnsley, South Yorkshire. What started as a fight between the two men ultimately led to Peter stabbing his love rival at death with the kitchen knife. I can't comment on the sentence Peter received as I've not looked into that case any further. The reason for that is that I don't want to detract too much from the story I'm currently telling, but regardless, he was found guilty of manslaughter rather than murder and received a six-year prison sentence. Peter was also reportedly involved in a hit-and-run incident later in his life which led to the death of someone else, but whether or not he served jail time for that offence is not known to me. The other thing Joanne had no knowledge of was Dyson's brutal treatment of his ex-wife Jenny Clark. It's up for debate as to whether Dyson even divulged the fact he was previously married, although he and Jenny had a daughter, so I imagine he must have at least mentioned Jenny to Joanne at some point. Dyson and Jenny married in 1999, just five months after they first met and started going out, but the fast-moving relationship did nothing to stop Dyson from assaulting his new wife on their wedding night. The attack was one of many times Jenny had been subjected to physical violence from her partner, although the most serious incident appears to have occurred when Dyson once attempted to strangle Jenny with his bare hands, only stopping when she fell unconscious. 
My understanding is that Dyson was in trouble with the police for at least one of those domestic violence assaults and he appears to have used a lot of the same controlling behaviours when he began dating Joanne. I'm obviously no psychologist, but I'm getting some real narcissistic vibes from Dyson. One trait of such a person is love bombing. That's a manipulative tactic used in the early stages of a relationship in an attempt to win over a new partner. The abuser typically showers their partner with love, affection and romantic gestures to such an extreme level that their validity can be questioned. The reason I think that is due to the quick nature of Dyson's wedding proposals. He married Jenny within five months of meeting her and it wasn't long after meeting Joanne that the pair moved in together and Dyson popped the question. Now to be fair, Dyson and Joanne weren't married at the time of this story's events in February 2005 after being together for around three years and the wedding was set to go ahead in October 2006. Let me know, do you think I'm right? Do you get them same narcissistic vibes from Dyson? Their relationship eventually began to show signs of strain, with the majority of their most heated arguments being over such trivial things as housework. Joanne often took exception to what she perceived to be laziness from Dyson when it came to helping her with household chores, such as washing clothes, but Dyson would simply get ultra-defensive and violent if he were ever called out for it. I want to be clear and state that I didn't read anywhere that physical violence ever took place regarding Dyson and Joanne before the events of February 2005. Then again, it doesn't specifically state that what happened that month was the first such event of domestic abuse either. I'll leave that for you, the listener, to ponder over. So the scene is now set. We have an absolutely amazing young woman who's dedicated her life to helping not only her family but strangers and wants nothing more than a happy future with her Prince Charming. Her fiancé is a violent and potentially narcissistic bodybuilder who idolises his murderous father and has a penchant for beating up the women he's in a relationship with. Oh, and Dyson also claimed he had links to the infamous twin gangsters Ronnie and Reggie Cray, something he liked to drop in now and then when promoting how much of a hard man he was. That takes us to the weekend of February 12th and 13th in 2005, the weekend before Valentine's Day. The weekend on which most couples who choose to celebrate that holiday will have had plans to do something as opposed to waiting until the following weekend. Here's where things get a bit hazy. We know that over the course of that weekend, Joanne disappeared from the home she shared with Dyson. The last official sighting of Joanne was on February 12th, but most of the sources I cited referred to this case as a Valentine's Day tragedy, implying that what occurred took place on February 14th. That's the day where our main timeline is going to start regardless, because it's the day Joanne Nelson was officially reported as missing by her fiancé. Dyson's version of events was that on that Monday morning, he'd gotten ready for work, as he did every weekday, and left the house with Joanne still in bed. He said he gave his fiancée a kiss and a cuddle and told her he'd see her later. It was early enough in the morning that she could still get a bit more sleep in before she had to get ready for work. Painting the picture of an idyllic relationship where everything was rosy, Dyson said the pair exchanged Valentine's cards that morning before he left and even went into detail about them. Joanne's was a Winnie the Pooh card whilst he had a cartoon girl on the front of his. 
A gift bag was then supposedly left in the front room for Joanne to discover upon making her way downstairs, inside of which was a ring she longed for, which Dyson had previously told her was too expensive to buy whilst they saved for the wedding. With his work shift complete later that day, Dyson headed home and was shocked to find Joanne was not yet back. Furthermore, her car was unlocked and she had not stopped off at her parents' house either. Dyson knew this because he rang Charlie and Jean to ask if they'd seen her. I want you to remember that phone call he made to Joanne's parents and the subsequent events as the story unravels. Being the concerned parents they were, Charlie and Jean popped over to the house right away. Dyson greeted Jean with a hug and he had tears streaming from his eyes as he promised he hadn't harmed their daughter. It would later come to light that Joanne had not turned up for work on February 14th, which was just so unlike her, as was disappearing from home without a trace. She'd never done anything like that before, and to not at least let one of her sisters know, never mind her parents, lacked any sense. Finally, at 9pm that night, Dyson phoned 999 and reported Joanne as missing. He reiterated to the operator how out of character Joanne's disappearance was and explained that he and Joanne's family and friends were going to begin house-to-house inquiries to see if anyone had heard from her. Their efforts led to nothing. As almost a 100 police officers joined in the search over the next few days, Dyson decided to do something rather bold. He felt it would be wise to take part in a TV appeal without first giving the heads up to Humberside Police. The TV appearance came just two days removed from Valentine's Day and it would come back to haunt Dyson months later. I'll explain why in a little bit. He also took part in interviews with the whole Daily Mail newspaper, further attempting to convince the nation that he was nothing more than a devoted partner who longed for the love of his life to return home safely. Less than a week after reporting Joanne as missing, Dyson was taken in for questioning by detectives working the case. He was the last person to see Joanne alive after all, and something just didn't quite add up, especially when it came to how Dyson came across on that TV appeal. He was formally charged with Joanne's murder on February 21st after his own mum told the police that he had confessed to killing Joanne. It wasn't actually Dyson's mum whom he confessed to though, it was one of his close mates. Thankfully, his mate saw enough sense to tell his mum about the confession and his mum was then brave enough to report what she'd been told to the police. Detectives now had their man, but the final piece of the puzzle was still missing. Dyson eventually admitted to having killed Joanne, but claimed to have forgotten where he'd dumped her body. As the days and weeks went by, Humberside police drafted in help from dive teams who used sonar to search fish ponds. Hundreds of local volunteers also chipped in, even the British Army. The search expanded to essentially the whole of Yorkshire, not just the East Riding, with reports of searches taking place as far south as Doncaster. Try as they might, the search teams consistently fell short when it came to finding Joanne Nelson. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Her bag was recovered close to a railway line under the County Road North overpass in Hull at some point during the investigation, but it seems as though a combination of luck and the process of elimination was what led to Joanne's body being found. Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins, the lead detective, made the discovery with his colleague Detective Constable Phil Gadd on March 24th after they explored a farm which matched the description of one they'd been looking for. 
Detective Superintendent Higgins said of finding Juan's body, We went for a walk, the rest is history. The site had not been subject to any previous intelligence from the public, the incident room had not been made aware this was a potential body deposition site, and it had not been searched before. A mile north of the village of Bransby near York, Higgins and Gad spotted a bin bag hidden in a ditch covered with twigs and branches. Inside was the body of Joanne Nelson. Another article I read claimed that Humberside Police had enlisted the help of forensic ecologist Professor Patricia Wiltshire, a renowned super sleuth who uses nature to help catch criminals. Professor Wiltshire said, When I got access to Dyson's car, footwear and a garden fork, I was able to predict and describe the place and I said she won't be buried. She'll be in a hollow covered in birch twigs. When they found her, she was just off the road in a hollow covered with birch twigs. It doesn't matter where we go in nature, we always leave a trail behind us and I use these clues to pinpoint police in the right direction. With Joanne's body now recovered, she was formally identified the next day by her distraught parents, Charlie and Jean. And here's the tidbit of information I teased you with earlier regarding the TV appeal Dyson took part in. At one point during the broadcast, the camera was focused on his hands. They probably did that because he was holding a tissue filled with his tears. What they didn't know is they were crocodile tears. The film crew didn't realise they were helping the murder investigation team by gathering further evidence which pointed towards Dyson deliberately killing Joanne. There were a couple of crescent-shaped marks on Dyson's knuckles, which Detective Superintendent Higgins said he recognised instantly as being defensive wounds from someone who'd been strangled. He said, In the interview, there were two marks on Dyson's thumb. I knew from dealing with previous assaults and murders that involved strangulation, the first thing a victim will do is try and pull those hands away from their neck. Higgins's theory was correct. The post-mortem results came back confirming Joanne's cause of death as being manual strangulation. With her body finally able to be released, Joanne's family planned her funeral. It took place on April 4th at Chantelin's crematorium with Reverend Alan Craven conducting the service. It was attended by over 300 people, which shows you just how much Joanne was missed by her friends, family and local community. Dyson continued to deny having murdered Joanne, instead admitting manslaughter all the way up to his trial. Having done so, he felt the best course of action would be for him to stand up in front of the entire packed courtroom on November 7th, day one of the trial at Hull Crown Court, and change his plea to guilty. Judge Tom Cracknell sentenced him to life imprisonment the following day with a minimum term of 16 years, and said this in his closing statement. You lost your temper and throttled Joanne Nelson, a vivacious 22-year-old woman who you professed to love. Having done so, you practised upon her body hideous indignities. You tied her up, put her inside bin liners, bundled her into the boot of a car and set off on a macabre and calculated journey to find a hiding place. You left her lying in a ditch. You went on TV and displayed a nausea and hypocrisy. You practice this deception upon Joanne's family, leading them to think there may be some hope when there was none. The grief and torment they went through is scarcely to be imagined. That essentially concludes this story's main timeline, but I haven't actually explained to you what happened on Valentine's Day weekend, have I? Here's the chain of events according to the prosecution. 
After arguing once more about household chores, doing the washing was again the topic of choice, Dyson and Joanne started arguing, but the former took things to the next level. Dyson absolutely lost it and laid his bare hands on Joanne's neck. Thinking quickly about what to do next after strangling his fiance to death, Dyson decided to pop into the couple's local corner shop to make a few purchases. CCTV footage from inside the shop caught him doing so. On his shopping list were bin liners, rubber gloves and disinfectant. With his cleanup items bought, Dyson drove to his mum's house and asked her if he could borrow her garden fork. He likely spun her a yarn about wanting to get some much-needed gardening done. As he returned home, he stopped and had a chat with his next-door neighbour, with the conversation leading to a discussion about another cat Dyson said he and Joanne were thinking of getting. He asked the neighbour if she'd had a nice holiday, and when she asked if Joanne was okay, he replied, Yes, she's fine. Just feet away from them was Joanne's lifeless body her young life taken away from her at the hands of the man she loved so dearly. The man stood outside chatting to their neighbour without a care in the world, as if nothing out of the ordinary had happened. Once inside the house, Dyson set about placing Joanne's body in bin liners before waiting for a more opportune time to place her body inside the boot of his car. He then drove 20-odd miles west from the couple's house in Hotham Road North in Hull to Howden near Goole, to fill the car up with petrol. From there, he drove around 60 miles north to the deposition site near Bransby before heading home and reporting Joanne as missing. The aftermath of this case is truly shocking. In October 2019, Dyson was granted a request to be moved to an open prison as the end of his sentence drew near, meaning he was to be gradually reintegrated into society. Joanne's family were briefly informed that Dyson had the option to put in a request to be moved, but when it came to finding out the outcome, they were just casually informed by the prison service that his request had been granted. The Nelson family have, understandably, been living in a persistent nightmare ever since their beloved Joanne was taken away from them, but the sickening icing on the proverbial cake came in early 2022. Dyson was released from prison after serving his 16-year minimum sentence, and is now a free man. Whether or not any conditions have been placed on him are not known, but he has more than likely changed his name and begun living a new life under that identity. One thing's for sure, he won't be welcomed back to Hull anytime soon, although can you imagine how much anxiety Joanne's family must have on a daily basis? They must fear bumping into Dyson randomly in the city centre. The family have not received any assurances that Dyson cannot return to Hull and to this day he has never provided an explanation as to what truly happened on Valentine's Day weekend in 2005, nor has he provided a motive. It makes one question why we send people to prison. Technically, Dyson served his full minimum term, yet what is 16 years compared to the life of a 22-year-old woman with so much to offer the world? If prison works, surely Dyson has been considered rehabilitated by the parole board, but the lingering thought of, what if he kills again, must surely weigh on their minds. I can't say I agree with his release, but I truly hope he is as rehabilitated as he possibly can be, and that no woman suffers at his hands ever again. And that was the story of the murder of Joanne Nelson. Thanks again, Michelle Butterworth, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I've got four reviews to read this week. 
Ross left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, Love the show. I'm mostly a fan of shorter UK and Irish-based podcasts with one host, and this one fits the bill perfectly. Views are always balanced to give details of both sides without ever sounding sympathetic to the perpetrator. Please stop attempting accents, though. It's cringy. Five out of five, though. Not taking points off for my nitpicking. I stopped attempting accents a long time ago, Ross. You'll be happy to hear. Dot L left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, Love the podcast that I listen to on Spotify. I love your daughter's contribution. I am a geek for different accents in the US and the UK, so I love yours. I like that your podcast is concise but informative. As one who is only slightly familiar with the locations you cover, could you give a general location of these places in the UK? Thanks for reading my review. I'll do my best going forward, Dot. Grace left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, Absolutely love the podcast. Perfect length episodes, excellent content, love the host and the accent, and I'm telling everyone I know about it. A suggestion for an episode, Shafilia Ahmed, a tragic honour killing in Warrington that took a long time for police to prove. Don't ever stop doing this podcast. That case, it's already on my spreadsheet, Grace, but I have now added your name to it. Thank you. And finally, Gene Hatter left a five-star view on BritishMurders.com. That reads, Love this podcast. It's very engaging, interesting, and easy to listen to. Thank you, Ross, Doc, Grace, and Gene for leaving those reviews. If you want to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or BritishMurders.com. Please keep leaving star ratings on Spotify. If you want to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can do that on patreon.com slash britishmurders or buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Natalie Hill and Marnie. Thank you, anonymous listener, for buying me a beer. The message left was, Hi, Stu, absolutely love the podcast. Came across the podcast on Series 8, listened right up to date, and I've started from the beginning, and I'm making my way through the back catalogue. Such a difference in a good way in your tone of voice and confidence when speaking between Series 1 and Series 2. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or just message me on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered when I get round to it, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out for your trouble. And that does us for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.